So I'll um, touch in some questions this evening. Tonight I just want to really focus on some of the terminology and the references that have been made so that we're all clear about the language what I'm referring to and any particular points that came out of today's explanations. So first question, you talk about the cosmos. Could you explain what you mean by it? Is it awareness itself? How do you conceptualize the cosmos? Hmm. Well, to summarize it, the cosmos really means the entire presentation of conditioned reality that we find ourselves enmeshed in. Hmm. So we can look at this in simple terms, the physical reality, apparently, it's physical things. Externally, we see physical things, trees, cars, mountains, buildings. We have a subjective, we have a physical thing, body. So we have a sort of personal and collective material things. And our lives are involved in this, aren't they? And then we have uh, immaterial experiences. So this could see some of the human constructions like um, economics, religion, philosophy, uh, politics, ideologies, collectively that hold people. We are held in the ideology of our societies, in things such as called nations, and national policies, and economic policy. It's a very profound effect. Uh, So our lives are really often very much influenced in trying to navigate through this uh, collective experience. Um, And uh, then we have an internal immaterial realities such as our, our thoughts, our personal beliefs, our personal interests. And these are kind of more so immaterial. And we can get very involved with that. So just as a sort of simple presentation of the cosmos. Uh, and by and large, human beings tend to kind of get into one aspect of it. You know, it's obviously the political world as a whole kind of strata of society dealing with politics. You get religious people. You've got churches and temples and synagogues and that's their big thing. Um, And of course you can get people really into bodies, sports, training, fitness, beauty, so forth. Body's the big thing. Uh, And then you've got uh, physical, external reality which uh, again environment um, stuff like that, physical, physical environment. And these can have positive and negative aspects to them, dependent on really uh, another sort of sacred cosmos, okay, internal cosmos, which is, okay, you can see the planet as, wow, there's a lot of timber around there. <laughs> you know, we could make use of that. Um, you know, we could, you know, plough that, carve that up, so forth. Or we could see, oh, there's beautiful trees. I wonder, amazing, such things are alive. Wow, what a privilege to, to live with such amazing creatures. So we see the same thing from a different perspective. So dependent upon the internal qualities which we're holding in our awareness. And we say the sacred ones are the ones that support harmony and life. And... Uh, sacred internal qualities such as sensitivity, um, loving-kindness, ethical concern. You see, so you have see, something like an external physical world. You know, we can have uh, uh, internal qualities of, that are sacred, see it as sacred, or we could see it just as dead matter. Um, so again, in our... Uh, experience, these internal qualities 
even nature has those. The external, apparently, external world has all kinds of intelligences happening in it. You know, the trees have got their intelligences, animals have their intelligences. The weather operates according to particular, you know, systems and changes going on. That uh, uh, it's not just inert matter; it's intelligent. And there are beings who can read that intelligence. You get sages and seers who actually are able to divine the movements of the energies in nature. And you know, so there's an internal quality to the cosmos. You know, and that internal quality can be sacred you know, or profane. We review the cosmos with a mind bent on self-interest and insensitivity then becomes a very profane experience and that damages our own hearts. And if we review this body, bodies creatures, from a different perspective, one was valuing them, then other creatures, our bodies become channels for um, virtue and vitality and, and health and so on. So we have a conditional reality. I've given you four four aspects: external, collective, planet, external, um, collective material, uh, external, collective psychologies, personal material form, personal immaterial ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and then you have. The interior of that is the way that we handle this. Mm. And that's the sacred cosmos. And so, a simple example of that, well, ethics, for example, is an aspect of the sacred cosmos because ethics, the sacred qualities bring things into harmony rather than self-interest. So ethics, for example, brings around the quality of sensitivity and concern and uh, harmlessness and so forth. Non-indulgence, which keeps things more balanced. It's called sila dhamma. Sila dhamma, sila, ethics, morality, dhamma, ethical training, ethical um, qualities. And that cultivation of sila dhamma is one aspect of bigger experience called buddha dhamma. And you get people who actually practice Siddha Dhamma, um, looking at nature. How does nature want to operate? How can we cooperate with it? And of course, we like to have that same sense <laughs> towards other humans. <laughs> How do we cooperate rather than, you know, oh, I'm Palestinian, you're Jewish, I'm a Hindu, you're Buddhist, this kind of stuff, it's everything apart. You know, How do we get some sense of the mutuality that brings things into harmony? So ethics is a sacred quality, because it does that. If there's no ethics, everything starts to break up. Yeah. Everything starts to break up. And the Buddha himself said when people lose the sense of ethics, then what happens is leaders are corrupt, the ministers are corrupt, governments are corrupt, people start to get very reckless and careless and greedy. And then what happens is that begins to affect the energies in the universe um, and the seasons go out of balance. Seasons go out of, it doesn't rain when it should rain. Crops dry up uh, and, uh, because of the absence of Sina Dhamma. And you look and think, well, it looks like he got it right <laughs> because that's what's happening. <laughs> and it doesn't take a genius to work out why you know, rabid exploitation so ethics has a degree in which the sensitivity inclines us towards a certain sense of renunciation simplification out of respect for the material world yeah. and don't take more than you need these are not earth-shatteringly new ideas but to really be very simple ideas but to hold them at the centre 
of one's awareness has big effects. Another aspect of that's sacred um, is samadhi, or, the, or cultivation of of the citta, purification of citta, so it becomes free from uh, defilement, free from fear, agitation, uh, bitterness, passion, greed, and so forth. And so, in quality like that, as a healing for the body, of course very powerful healing energy for the um, body's energy system to have samadhi it means the energies we're using minimal energy you know, energy goes right down the amount you use and what's there stays in steady state and so the system our, our physical system is not giving these huge rushes of energy rushing around and tangling the system gets very clean like that uh, this naturally takes our awareness to some very deep places. This again has long-term effects because if we are cultivating like that, then for sure our greed and our passions are going to go down. That's going to be for everything's welfare. And also it enables us to individually acknowledge, you know, well, the most important thing in the whole cosmos is the balance of our mind. If that goes out, everything goes out. <laughs> yeah. You get this together, everything's going to benefit. Yeah. So in this way, we feel perhaps less impotent. You know, we see a big planet and people doing crazy things and wars and famines and, oh God, help us. What can you do? Well, <laughs> you know what you can do? Practice <laughs> yeah, Sila Samadhi. Yeah. Mm. You say, well, that's not going to change government in this country or the war in that country. Probably not immediately, no. But the more that these values are strengthened and upheld, it has a kind of global effect on the consciousness. So we may feel very despairing about the state of the world. Um, you know, actually... The problem is, is it's a minority psychologies. They're all minorities. They just happen to have their hands on the levers of power, but they're all minorities. It's a minority of one or two percent of human beings. Well, I don't know exactly. But for example, you know, you know, a few years ago, there's outrage. Somebody shot a lion in South Africa. There's this kind of outrage. Well, 50 years ago, shooting lions was totally okay. <laughs> now it's a kind of moral outrage. And I think that's good. The general sensitivity of the society is such that we no longer see these things as, as fun or enjoyable or good sport. We see them as atrocities. That's good. You know, and there's a rising of that. And it's not about telling people you must not do this, you must believe that. Just something begins to... Consciousness starts to elevate through my senses, through the collective infusions of these great wisdom teachings and practices that people have practiced by the millions all over the world. And that's... It's never been like that before. You know, and... Most countries in the West, you can pick up the wisdom teachings from China, Tibet, India, all over the place. Just you know, just click on the internet. There it is. You know, you can get access to it. So we've certainly developed, you know, but just it's a very long journey and it's painful. So we have to really take refuge in those good qualities and keep steadying ourselves in those. Oh, there's no point getting angry and bitter and despondent. <laughs> doesn't do you any good at all. And then they have the wisdom, which is the final or supreme aspect of 
in a sacred cosmos which is recognizing well this is all just qualities that are subject to change uh, and we deal with it responsibly and we don't hold on to that and there's a liberation from the cosmos so the, certainly well from the Buddha's point of view he didn't see there was anywhere finally in the conditioned world that you actually find we got it right you'd find you're managing it carefully doing the best you can and the heart is there's one point that can find the release from that that is in the heart but there's no doubt about it that uh, we do need to establish skillful conditions yeah so we do need to keep uh, building up uh, this uh, skillful conditions otherwise we just don't have the strength and the clarity and the support that's needed to live responsibly in this world and also to to find a release from it someone's asking about feeling do you mean vedana or more complex emotions Um, by and large I'm talking about feeling, I'm referring to Vedana. Mm. Of course, in, certainly in English, the word feeling can cover a number of things. It can cover the sense of intuition. I feel that you're not listening to me. It is, it's not, that's not Vedana, that's a perception, Sanya. Or I feel very excited, that's Sankara. But, Feeling is is the general sense of that impact when something impacts consciousness. There's a shift of energy. It's obvious when very distinct when you get very strong impact. You know, like you 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 walk past some flowers and this beautiful fragrance. Wow, and something jumps. You know, there's a pleasant feeling that arises. And of course, negative. The uh, feeling is energy moves around. And then, based upon that, we have something called sankara, which is activation. So there's the feeling jumps, there's a energy jumps, and then sankara activation occurs. We get, oh, I really must have one of those. Excited. It's a whole program starts operating Mm. more complex emotions are a mix of uh, feeling that is they're agreeable or disagreeable and triggered by agreeable or disagreeable perceptions feeling Mm. so emotion is both the perception you know that was offensive that was disgusting that was beautiful that's a perception. It's our immediate take on something, our immediate way we define something immediately. And it's a general, a generic statement. Hmm. And perception. And that perception and the feeling and the perception that was beautiful, that was disgusting, that triggers the sankara. Because it's beautiful, I want to stay with it. Because it's disgusting, I want to get away from it. You know, so the sankara is the activation, some sort of emotional activation. So emotions are a mix of that, and they move around. So the emotion come kind of feeling of uh, emotional happiness or irritation or fear or um, appreciation. There's emotional surges. And these can be quite complex because... Um, we get very simple feeling, uh, emotion like a child does. You know, when a child suddenly just screams or laughs, you know, and so it you know, feels very immediately, it's kind of naked emotion. But we have all kinds of emotional management systems. We feel like screaming, so don't scream now, just keep it quiet. And so, <laughs> so we have a response to our emotions which is also sankara, which could be either 
cool it or suppress it or don't feel like that, you know. So it gets quite complex through the management of emotion. Of these raw emotions, you get complex emotions like embarrassment. Uh, an emotion occurred that doesn't fit in with my self-image. We've got something called a self-image, so then you get embarrassment. Everybody's looking at me. What am I doing? And so there's a more complex emotion. Mm. So there's another question on emotion. So as I'm touching into that particular term, question asks, how can one be with emotions but not in them? How can be with emotions but not in them? It's a good question and a major point of practice. Uh, the nature of emotion, feeling, perception, sankara, these are all very intimate. They're intimate, so, and they're subjective. Certainly, I feel annoyed, I feel embarrassed or something, so complex, and I'm in it. And uh, I'm in it, and I might even be reacting to it. Like, try to put on a brave face if I'm feeling anxious. I think, don't be anxious, just be something else, you know. So, you get this complex interaction with emotion um, because it's all being referred to in terms of self, and self is a kind of uh, 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 an image, you know, what I think people think of me, how I imagine people see me, that sort of self-image, or how I conceive myself, you know. I am a grown person, I shouldn't be acting this foolish way. Our emotions get referred to something called a self. And of course it could be self out there, you know. What I imagine he thinks about me. So we refer these emotions to, to a self. And this um, creates more emotion, emotional tangle. Because I don't like my emotions. <laughs> I wish I didn't have that one. Or I wish I felt more of this one. Some people are so cheerful, I don't get enough of that. Uh, so we take emotions very personally. Then you get more sankharas more is activations. So it gets extremely complex and dense to the point in which people I don't want to feel any emotions at all, just chill out, you know, cut it all out, let's just be totally straight and you get suppression of emotional denial of it, you know. And that's an emotion. <laughs> it's an emotional reaction to emotions is to try to not feel them. So, it's not being in them is is complex. Trying to get out of them often leads to some some suppression or denial. So, what's it to be with them? Mm. So, for example, somebody else's emotion, you can see she's getting very angry. I could. Uh -huh. Mm. Yes. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, mm, you know, let's go for a walk and sit down, you know. You could be with them, couldn't they? You know, because you're not experiencing it. Uh, mm. And at that time, it would probably not be wise to say, oh, don't get angry. <laughs> Do you realise anger is an impermanent, unskillful state? <laughs> it would not be a wise policy. But to be with it means it's sympathy, doesn't it? Okay, yeah, mm, oh, hear that. It must be very uncomfortable for you. So, so it's sympathetic. Yeah, so this is the, the, uh, the more the at angle attitude. And we have a big support there in terms of our, our body. Uh, so I've been talking about the inner body, body internally, and... Um, big aspect of that is the body's energy systems. Right. Okay. So we notice when we get angry, body flares. 
inflamed. Uh, so you can see anger, energy rushes to their face and all the muscles harden because it's a fight trigger. Fear goes into the belly, energy rushes down there and we harden in a protective way. Joy, face brightens, energy comes into the skin, everything opens up. Yeah. So these are very obvious and clearly discernible um, energy patterns that are in the body where the emotion runs. And if one really looks into this whole field, you begin to recognize that the emotional tracks, channels, movements, and the body's energy system are pretty much the same. They're running down the same channels. Yeah. They're running down the same channels. But, although the heart unless it's supported, tends to become those emotions. They flood the heart. We become it. Those emotions don't necessarily flood the body. They activate certain parts. So we might get anger coming into our face, um, you know, gripping, hardening in the shoulders. Okay, what's happening in the legs and the feet? Can I widen my chest? And can I breathe out? Mm-hmm. So there are many tracks in the body's energy system. We just shift the track. Mm. So in a way you're still hearing that feeling or that sense, the angry sense, and even the flaring of it. So what's it feel like in the body? Is it in my face? Is it in my hands? It's there. And it's in my hands, what's happening in the wrists and the elbows and the shoulders. And anywhere I can not deny the emotion, but just soften the body. And the energy then, and says these intense rushes, becomes settled and suffuses. You can soften the energy of, of, of strong emotion. Uh, and so we might also say something like sadness, feel a really kind of caving in, or grief, we feel very, you know, disoriented. Yeah. It's an emotion, of course, but though you can't just call emotion, emotion is an embodied experience. <laughs> so then you really, these very profound emotions, one feels them in one's body. And say, okay, then you've got an attitude of, okay, well, there's that sense of defeated, can't make it, you know, and then coming into the spine, uh, feeling the ground beneath me, move through the space around me. Yeah, it's still sad, but I'm now I'm managing it. I'm with it, but not in it. And once I'm with it, rather than in it, I can start to respond to that as a good friend. Okay, it's sad now. It's sad now. This will change. It's sad now. Don't expect it to be anything other than sad. But you can be with this. And listen to it. Learn from it. And find a place where the energy of that sadness does not overwhelm you. So you stay intact. You stay coherent. You stay present. Yeah. And then this is a way in which all our emotions, believe it, all of them, fear, anger, jealousy, embarrassment, they're all teachers. Because they are saying something yeah, that means we have to develop a great capacity to be present and sympathetic with the emotional cosmos, <laughs> the bitterness, you know, the rage, the desolate. And then the heart becomes very, very strong, not in a heavy way, but 
spacious, has great capacity, and is not rocked and overwhelmed. And then we can also, just in that process of listening and holding presence, there's a possibility of those emotions to begin to transmute. So, for example, if we are present with our anger, our rage, in a steady, compassionate way, it becomes strength. Instead of that going out, it holds steady. I do not stand for this. I do not tolerate this. But I'm not on fire. Mm. And there's some things indeed that one can feel very angry about. (laughs) Mm. But if it's not managed, it just burns, burns us up. It's managed, it makes us strong. Uh, Fear, there are plenty of things to feel truly fearful about. We're vulnerable creatures, there's a lot of power around. But fear, if it's handled properly, makes us extremely alert, sensitive. We're not casual, we're attuned. The mind is very open. Mm. So these emotions can transmute into much more um, transcending forms. When they transcend, they take us out of ourself. We become bigger than our self-image. We become more capable than our self-image. Don't deny your emotions. Uh, If properly managed, they can take you out of your self-image, which is always narrow and fragile and not really worth holding on to. (laughs) Absolutely. And we can become much bigger than that. And certainly uh, with fear, for example, it's pretty much basic. Uh, In forest forest monasticism, it's a very uh, uh, fundamental um, encouragement to be with the frightening, to be in the dark, in the wilds, with nothing, no defense. And so we both accept our mortality. We will die one day. Now the fear does not overwhelm me. It makes me alert, sensitive. And there's a strength that comes with that. You become fearless through managing fear, not through not having it. Another question, could I talk more about tanha? and its relationship to sankhara and dukkha. So the refresher, tanha, means thirst. That's literally the meaning of it. It's, um, and I've mentioned these three, and it's an instinctive reflex. It's not a choice. It's not a decision. It's not a motivated desire. It's a, it's a reflex, an instinctive reflex. And it's uh, a reflex that's born from an unawakened state, the unawakened state. And this reflex, as I've suggested, is both to seek, it's trying to seek um, a position of satisfaction. Um, And so the first way it tries to seek that is a sense gratification. If I get enough of this, I'll, I'll feel totally happy. If I get more. And that's naturally doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, so, but it's thirst for that. So it's always blind quality. And um, the other one I mentioned, Bhava Tanha, 
which is the thirst for becoming, means building up, building up oneself, building up oneself image, um, power, status, whatever, you know, different ways we do that. If I get to be one of these, I'll be fine. If I get to be the champion, if I get to be the best, if I get to be strong, attractive, intelligent, I'll be fine. Well, no, that doesn't work either. And then Vibhava is, if I can only get away from people, things, events, things that my crazy mind, uh, so, so all these tanhas, reflex, then I'd be okay. And uh, the delusion of it is that it, it seems to say, I will be okay, I will be fine. But actually the I who will be fine is created by the tanha. <laughs> It's not that I have a lot of thirst. Thirst has a lot of me. <laughs> so thirst is just a, a kind of almost, you could almost say it's a neurological reflex. And then that reflex and the programs that come out of that reflex, like, oh, I get this, I get that, I'll do this, you know, become me, the conventional self. Yeah what I do, how I behave. It tends to sculpt the behavior of the conventional self in certain ways or another. Mm. But actually it's a fallacy. Uh, we begin to see the way that it doesn't work because tanha really activates. We get the energy of it, the activation of it, when it hasn't been gratified. As long as I don't get what I want, if I feel I'm about to get what I want, is great. About to get what I want, that's great. Getting what I want is, oh well, so what? <laughs> Next. <laughs> you may take, you know, a day or a second sometimes, or half an hour, then I want some more. Because the, the really exciting bit about it is the sense of about to get what I want and once you've got it you can't be about to get it because you've got it so the, the Tanha can never achieve that that fulfillment it's based upon non-fulfillment non-fulfillment that creates a sense of an unfulfilled self the un unfulfilled self will be fulfilled if she does this if she gets that. <laughs> so it constantly creates the frustrated self uh, that uh, naturally is identified with as that's me. Uh, so the Buddha said, well, just don't, let's just, whether it's you or not, rather than deny that you exist, which isn't the point, let's see some of those programs, it's Tanha and uh, just start to bear witness to them. And then notice how it rises and changes, how it moves, how it runs, seeks something, and then how it does that. And then what's going to occur is your, your wisdom faculty and your awareness faculty begin to strengthen. And you think, oh, that's tanha. And then with that, the root quality of unknowing or ignorance dissolves. And the foundation of tanha is removed, you know, in a graduated way. Of course, it takes quite a powerful focus of attention to keep tracking those energies, that thirst energy, because it could be quite subtle. You know? mm. So, dukkha is the general sense of dissatisfaction, incompletion. And uh, this is seen as both associated with the fact of conditioned reality tends to keep requiring to be fed, it goes on and it's mortal and it changes and it dies. It's not it's never complete, it's a wheel that has to keep turning, so it never arrives anywhere. And that's, uh, uh, that's just that, that. The problem is when we get on board, when we actually get onto that wheel and then there's the dukkha is the sense of 
Why aren't I getting anywhere? Why can't I get what I want? This isn't satisfying me. Something wrong with me. This is the internalization of it. Dukkha. And therefore, tanha. If only I could have this, I'd be okay. Sankara is something um, more all-embracing. You've got to recognize that however powerful tanha is, it's not innately what we are, it's something that happens to us, happens to the heart, and we can step out of that. Sankara is much more complete in that it's the very processes of thinking, of emotion, and even of somatic energies. You can see it's almost like the subtle channels of intelligence that, that we experience. And three forms of it, the Kaya Sankara, which is the bodily energy system. And it's intelligent, it means it can activate, it can respond, it can twitch, it can jump, it can breathe. It knows what's going on in bodily terms. That's Kaya Sankara. Breathing in and out is Kaya Sankara. The body knows how to breathe in and out. You don't, you don't worry if you forget it, you won't, you'll still keep going. <laughs> yeah. So because it's intelligent, it knows how much you need and when to stop breathing out, and when to, you know, so it, it changes. So that's Kaya Sankara, and it sends energy through the whole embodied system. Chitta Sankara is the heart energies, which can be um, ethically positive, such as our sense of um, helpfulness or compassion. We get activated, energy runs out into a wholesome state. Or it can be unwholesome. We feel angry, we feel upset, we feel disappointed, we feel worried. Heart energy goes in tangled, dark states. Yeah. And Vajisankara is the process of forming concepts. Forming concepts, the ability to form concepts. And if you know people who have dementia or Alzheimer's, you recognize, yeah. This, this very energy, can, this function can break down. doesn't mean there's nobody there. It doesn't mean they're not sensitive. It just means they can't form concepts. You know? And even in our relative states of health, we can be in states similarly so overwhelmed with emotion we can't speak. You know? So that conceptual energy is Vajji Sankara, the ability to conceive and articulate if you're drugged or hypnotized, that can go, or sick, that can go. So these are all the energy systems that have degrees of in intelligence in them, and that's, that's kind of what we are cultivating, because you can cultivate skillful sankharas to act as the foundation for one's samadhi to dwell in, collect, stabilize, you know, increase, cultivate the skillful sankharas. So the unskillful ones, you're almost like you're unplugging them. You know, if you can imagine something like sankharas being like almost like energy trails or synapses in the brain, if you like that idea. If you don't send energy down those channels, eventually those channels dry up. You know, so if you're not going into self-hatred and eventually that potential dissolves uh, so that's sankara and uh, tanha and, and dukkha and surely this sankara thing we'll get back to that much more because that's one of our primary we're already doing it <laughs> yeah we're already involved in that process it's just one way of describing it. So someone mentions that in one of the guided meditations, encourages us to feel or sense into joy in the heart without any further pointers or instructions to how is one supposed to get in contact with joy when it can seem completely absent <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the momentary experience. Yeah. 
I know what you mean. <laughs> I guess I was being optimistic. <laughs> I think I was just uh, uh, just looking for some reference points. Occasionally, you might feel joy. <laughs> So sensing just how it affects your breathing. So I think when we're doing breath meditation or energy work in the body, just saying, you know, when you feel uh, something like, like, how does fear or sadness or how does that affect your breathing? How does joy? Joy brings energy up. It's a bright energy, you know, whenever, whenever you get it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So you know, if I continue that line of instruction, I'm saying when there is a skillful state, joy, then when you're in that skillful state, really focus on not just the state, but the breathing. Because I'm saying the emotional energy and the body energy are running in the same channel. So if you, if you have you know, senses of loving kindness or gladness or compassion, really how your breathing is, because those emotional energies have healing qualities they're not just you know immaterial they're the energies so if you really focus on it, they will they will transfer into your subtle body into your energy body right and they're healing you know okay so if we well, go on with that a bit if you're you know people living in cynicism Cynicism, bitterness, employment. What, what, do they, what do you think happens to their bodies? You just kind of, everything kind of contracts, goes sour, no vitality. Depression, anxiety kills people. Yeah. It's a major life inhibitor. Worry. You can die of a broken heart. It's not just a metaphor. A certain quality of, of uh, shocked grief actually causes contractions in the heart and then so you need to be held carefully to process that otherwise the heart gets it's kind of the neurology of the heart is is distorted you know when you feel the quality say of bitterness or jealousy you know it's extremely unpleasant when that rushes through your system or anger and it's not processed they're sending chemicals if you'd look at it like that. And they don't just evaporate. You're bathing yourself in the energetic residues of your emotions, of heart energies. They transfer. So similarly, if we are, if we are able to uh, touch into positive states, you know, then that's the time you really be with that and breathe it, because that will actually... You know, help your body on the, on the energetic level. Mm. So, okay, so I was mentioned this just joy. Well, where does it come from? You can't say you will now be joyful. But it's um, something we, we, can, we can invite and can, uh, supportive conditions. And I think from myself, uh, I get a lot of joy of seeing other people welfare you know people developing uh, coming out of darkness uh, strengthening themselves I feel a sense of oh well that's good that gives me joy um, you know I don't go into it but that's just what happens I see joy I experience joy when I see other beings free from sorrow mm. I experience joy when I um come out of the heaviness and brooding of my thinking mind. <laughs> it's complexities and it's patterns. I come out of that and I come into... Uh, we're here. Just lighten up, you know. <laughs> it's a miracle. You're here. It's a miracle already. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, that, that's joyful. Um, because it really is. It's not just a fantasy. You know, when you try to get the, the fact that existence happens. And, you know, and you're you. And that's happening. 
I mean, where's that all come from? So there's a sense of the freshness. We take our experience as a stable, fixed, taking for granted reality. It's an ongoing miracle. (laughs) You know? As they say, I think somebody, some writer said, if you you lived on Mars, if you'd been on Mars and you came to the Earth, you just go mad with joy. Just looking at the, the flowers, the animals, think, wow, what is this? You know, if, you know, just the sense of where does it come from? You know, life itself. So these maybe we sense that, and when a trained person, because joy is not so common, frankly, but a trained person is one who cultivates their joy by knowing what to attend to giving proper attention to topics that support joy, such as one is free from hatred for a moment (laughs) or for an hour. One is free from oppressive depression. I remember one of the monks who'd had bladder cancer, had his whole bladder taken out and they had to carve, cut off some of his intestine and make a new bladder out of it, stick it in again. So it was like this state for six months or so. And he said, eventually after, he said, oh, just about to urinate, such joy. (laughs) (laughs) And most of us can do that (laughs) any day, and it's like, so what? (laughs) Because you take it for granted. So there's a certain stepping outside of the identity that makes life miraculous. Well, I think that's enough for this evening in terms of conceptualization. I hope some of it's useful.